morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. That's page 572 in the Bibles provided for you. We're taking a pause from the series on the minor prophets. Sarah helped us a bridge between the minor prophets and this major prophet. Not that one is more important than another. It's just longer than the other prophets, Isaiah is. But Isaiah overlaps with some of our friends we've already studied, Hosea and Micah and Amos. He's writing about 700 years before the coming of Christ. And we're studying in this Advent season the hymns of Christmas, hymns in the Bible about the coming of Christ, and also maybe some uh, insight we gain from familiar hymns at Christmas too. And the, we read, we start reading in chapter 8 because chapter 9 is very familiar to us, but, but we need to know the context that, that provoked this prophecy of chapter 9. Uh, Isaiah is writing in the time of a, a wicked king named Ahaz. And Ahaz was threatened by a nation called Syria, and in fear he turned to another wicked nation, an even more wicked nation named Assyria. Instead of turning to the Lord, he turned to a power, a political power, a financial, a military power. We might call that pragmatism, pragmatics, doing what you think works, just because it works. What happens when we turn to our own devices, even the ones that are commonly commended to us, what happens when we turn to our own devices to pragmatism rather than to the Lord? What happens when we, out of fear of man, turn to man rather than turning to the fear of the Lord? Well, Isaiah gives us the bad news as well as the good news. It all comes through the good news, all comes through Jesus. We begin reading in chapter 8, verse 11, page 572 in the Pew Bible. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. 
and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth to behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his suppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, to behold your light and behold your mercy, that we might find guidance and joy in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And it's in his name we pray, God's people said together, amen. A few months ago, we celebrated Reformation Sunday, the, the, the day we celebrate once a year when the gospel was restored to the church, the clarity of the gospel that you're saved only by faith, only by grace through faith in Christ. We celebrated in October in remembrance of Martin Luther who nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, but that Reformation spread to the rest of the Western world, including England, the English Reformation, followed on a few decades later. And a primary figure of the English Reformation was Bishop Hugh Latimer. Latimer was a bishop in the church, eventually a chaplain to the king. But while he was, and he came to faith in Christ with this this refreshed or this fresh insight into the the gospel. He trusted Christ himself, began to preach that and preached it very boldly. Ultimately, it led to his his martyr's death. On one occasion, he was preaching. He was a bishop of Worcester, so somewhere in one of those, in in that bishopric, he was preaching and Henry VIII showed up. Henry VIII uh, was a powerful king, not such a nice husband. And he showed up in that in that uh, sanctuary, and they weren't prepared for him. They weren't expecting him. And Latimer began to have a conversation with himself in front of the people, a soliloquy. He said to Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. The king of England is here. Latimer, 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 
Be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. You're prone to think that you should be afraid. You should be careful what you say because the king of England is here. But he was reminding himself what matters most is what the king of kings thinks. It's exactly what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is uh, hearing from the Lord that, uh, that uh, you, you, Isaiah, all of your neighbors are afraid of the king. They're afraid of military power, financial ruin. They're afraid of political opponents. They're afraid of men. But Isaiah, don't you be afraid of those who can ultimately do no harm. You put your fear, you you fear God alone. You fear God alone. That is the fear that eclipses all other fears. Now, you say, no, why would we want to be afraid of God? Fear in the Bible is not, fear of God in the Bible is not servile, terrorized fear of someone who can punish you. It is rather, as John Calvin said, fearing, disappointing a father. It's the attitude of a loving son, fearing, bringing disappointment on the father he knows has loved him first. When you make that one your fear, when you say, more than anything else in this world, I fear disappointing the father who loves me so much then no one else who tries to make you afraid can do so. When Jesus is your supreme head, your alone Lord, you'll have light that provides guidance. In a dark world, you'll have mercy that provides joy in the midst of despair. Now, that's how it falls out in our passage Primarily, our text is 9, 1 through 7, but we're dipping back into chapter 8 to get the context. And the first thing I want you to see is that light in Jesus, the coming one who has prophesied here, this child to be born, this is Jesus who becomes the light of the world. This light provides guidance. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is what King Ahaz did. It is he turned to pragmatics. He thought, I've got Rezin, the king of Syria, threatening me. What what alone makes sense? What does a person do in the real world? What does it mean to live on the right side of this particular time in history? Well, it can only mean uh, doing what all kings do. That is to find a bigger power. I'm going to find somebody more powerful. And by promising them tribute, by promising them loyalty, by promising them tax tax money, revenue, then I'll get them to protect me. That's what I'll do. That's what he did. He turned to Tiglath-Pileser, the the king of Assyria, the bigger kingdom, the more threatening kingdom. And he said, I need you to protect me. And Pileser, Tiglath-Pileser promised to do so. He turned to power. Power works. Money works. But what were the results? He has went to Tiglath-Pileser and he, he said, I'll submit to you. And what happened? 
times became even darker. He, he became more indebted, more enslaved. Eventually, he had to worship the gods of the Assyrians and those gods of the Assyrians demanded human sacrifice. Eventually, those gods of the Assyrians accessed through mediums and necromancers, that is, people who consult with the dead. Eventually, they demanded the sacrifice of his own child. The kind of worship that was prescribed by those Canaanite gods, the kind of worship that was prescribed by those surrounding pagan nations resulted in child sacrifice. You had to have chemicals to enhance your worship. There was sexual immorality. There was violence and imitation of the gods. There was self-harm. There was rage. And we look at that and we say, how backward are those people? How could they have thought such a thing? But that was the, that was the way of the world. That was the, the common worldview. That was the approach. If you need guidance, the only, the, the only reliable guidance comes from the dead. And you hire a necromancer, you hire a, a medium, and you go in and ask. These are people. It makes sense, doesn't it, that they've lived a while, and, so, uh, and they've died. They're on the other side. They know how to advise you. That was the common worldview, what we might call today the social imaginary. That's the way you get guidance. That's the way it is to live on the right side of history. That makes sense. That's rational. That's pragmatic. But what seemed so rational and pragmatic became dark. Sexual immorality, violence, destruction of families and marriages, the destruction of one's own body, sacrifice of your own children. What kind of society would ever submit to guidance that would lead to those kinds of things? may be our own. Oh, we're too sophisticated. We're too sophisticated to, to hire mediums and palm readers and so forth. But we have our own mediums, like social media or news media or political wonks or our neighbors or those in our social circles, or our peers, or the majority voices of our clubs, or our locker rooms, or our schools, the people in our social circles. We listen to them. We come to church on Sunday, maybe, and we say, no, the Bible is my guide. But even the Bible is filtered through their voices. And how is, it, uh, how is it working out for us as a society? Except hopelessness, darkness, descent into the dark web, descent into self-harm, descent into hopelessness, descent into sacrificing our children on the altar of the worldview or opinions we want. We're desperately seeking for the world's approval. Darkness. 
Where do you turn for light, for guidance? You turn to the one who was born to us, a son. One who is a wonderful counselor. Wonderful is a note of deity. Don't you want someone who can guide you who is God? Not somebody on the all-wise web or the all-wise talking head on your TV who, who, who doesn't have any more insight into the future than you do. You want a wonderful, you want a divine counselor. You want Jesus speaking through his word to you. Through all the means of grace he gives you. The context of a community where the word is taught, where it is preached, where it is applied, where it is confirmed to your conscience in in, uh, the means of grace, where it is practiced in a community of like-minded people who are guided by Christ, a wonderful counselor. You need a mighty God. You need the one who is sovereign and divine, the one who brought all things into being, the one who sustains all things by his word and by his power, by the one who controls all history. You want the one, you want the one who wrote the world, who invented the world to provide the owner's manual for you. You want to follow that owner's manual. Regardless of how freakish it might Make you appear to your neighbors what a fanatic they might say you are. They might cast you out of their social circles. They might fire you. They might not shop any longer at your store. They might not invite you to their parties. But you want to walk in the light? Walk in the darkness. You want to create a healthy atmosphere, a healthy culture of the one you're leading, whether it's your home, whether it's your, your subgroup in your school, your peer group. You want, to, you want to create a healthy culture? It takes courage. Not a failure of nerve, as one writer said. A failure of nerve, that is, I'm not going to stand out. I'm not going to stick out. I want to conform to what everybody else is doing. It ends in darkness. It, 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 it results in look, it, of, of looking up and becoming greatly distressed and shaking your fist at heaven and then looking at the world and despairing and descending into thick darkness. You want to turn to the Lord Jesus who will do this. The result will be justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness, as he says in our, in our text and in verse 7, and Isaiah talks a lot about justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness have become trigger words even in the evangelical church. So how are they defined? Well, let's let the Bible define them. Let's let Isaiah define them. We know in Isaiah 53 that it first means that you are justified and made righteous. So if you're estranged from God, as you are born such... It means that you say, Lord Jesus, save me. And this is what he does. He came to live and die in your place to take the punishment that was due for your sins. When you ask him for salvation, he takes that righteousness that he earned and he puts it in your place and he makes you just. He makes you conformed to God's standards. He takes you and reaches to you in your vulnerable position and justifies you. And then... He makes you righteous. 
But it also means it's proven by. Here is what happens. When you are justified and made righteous, you become just and righteous. You become one who pursues justice and righteousness. And Isaiah explains that too. Later in Isaiah 58, he says, for instance, is this not what I came to do, to to do justice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The proof that one has been made justified, when it has been justified, the one who has been made righteous in Christ is that he has that justice and righteousness burns its way out of you and you seek the vulnerable and you seek to do righteousness in restoring people to God and to their world. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Light has dawned on those who were in darkness and when light has dawned on you, light goes from you. You bring light into the darkness. Light provides guidance. That's the difference turning to Christ as opposed to turning to pragmatics. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is mercy provides joy. Mercy provides joy. <clears throat> what, happened to, what happened to Ahaz? His pragmatism led him to, and his people, to despair. Ahaz went up to Assyria to visit Tiglath-Pileser and he, he saw that Assyria, there was, an, there was a church there and it had a different altar from the one back in, back in Israel. Different from the one that was prescribed by God. And so he, he takes drawings of it. He brings it back to his high priest Uriah and he said, I want you to build one of these. Now do what you need to do. Rearrange the furniture that God has prescribed. In fact, bring that bronze altar over here to the side. I want that one just for me. And then I want everybody else making their sacrifices like the Assyrians do, including child sacrifice. He sold his soul to the worldview, not just political protection, but he sold his soul to the worldview of the Assyrians. And it became radically individualistic. I'm going to have my own altar. I'm going to get my own answers. And I'm going to live according to those own, those answers. What happened? It leads to despair. I've read several studies recently on what is commonly called now the diseases of despair or deaths by despair. A death by despair is obviously suicide or by drug abuse or alcohol abuse. Deaths of despair and deaths of despair are on the rise, especially since COVID. A couple of scholars, University of Pennsylvania, writing for the journal, the American Medical Association of Psychiatry, 
produced a study I read this week called Why Deaths of Despair Are Increasing in the U.S. and Not in Other Industrial Nations. He compared the U.S. mortality rate by deaths from despair to the mortality rates from deaths of despair in 16 other wealthy nations. And our mortality rate is the highest. More people are dying of despair in America than any other wealthy nation. Number of conclusions they draw, but one is this arresting phrase. He said the primary reason that Americans are dying from despair is that they are opting for cold individualism. It's the worldview that we've inherited from the last several centuries is finally coming to bear its fruit. That is, what I, what, how am I going to decide what I'm supposed to do? What I'm supposed to think morally, ethically, what I'm supposed to do with my life, I'm supposed to spend my time, spend my money. I'm going to make those decisions based on how I feel. What I think. I may have the Bible in one hand saying I believe the Bible, but my default actually is what do I think? Deaths of despair are on the ascent. Few people are asking, First, what does the Bible say? Fewer and fewer people are turning first to what do those who have spiritual insight into Scripture or the, the, the spiritual authorities in my life, how do they, what, what is their counsel? Fewer and fewer people are starting their week by getting reset in corporate worship so that, so that, that the whole world is put back in proper perspective as they approach the coming week. Fewer and fewer people. Even the Surgeon General said in his study, The Epidemic of Loneliness in America, that the primary reason, he says, that we are suffering from the epidemic of loneliness is that people have quit going to church. Now, he doesn't say then, so you need to start going to church. Instead, he, he can't say that. He says instead, you just need to find a group to become a part of. Become a part of any group. But here the Lord has graciously said, I am your wonderful counselor. I'm your mighty God. I am your everlasting father. And I've given you my son who will bring peace. Look first to me. It's like one of those quarterbacks in, 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 uh, in football. You know, he steps back from the count, looks over to the coaches on the sideline to get the play before he goes farther. Before you make that decision, that next decision, step back and say, what does the Lord tell me to do in his word? Who needs to help me understand what he says to do in his word? How might I gain reinforcement to my conscience by attending regularly the sacraments to know this is absolutely the truth when all the, other, all the ground underneath me is shaking? And this is what you'll find. You'll find that the one who gives you guidance, even if it seems to spoil your fun for the moment, if it seems to make you appear to be a radical, it is from an everlasting father. It is from one who loves you. I was speaking to one of our senior members 
this week sharing her testimony with me and uh, her testimony began uh, commonly enough. This is how I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the way I grew for a number of years. And then she said, and then I understood. I always knew that God loved me as my father. I always knew that, but I never felt it. I knew it, but I didn't feel it. She was poring over first John four nineteen one day, and then she decided to look it up in a different translation. And the different translation read this way, perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Through those verses, through constantly pondering the love of God in Scripture, she came not only to believe God loved her as as her father, but to feel it. And she said, I've had a rough life and many patches of, of difficulty in my life, but I have never doubted God loved me. How am I going to get that? There's such peace. There's such peace in knowing no matter what I'm going through, The father loves me. How did she get it? It's at the end of this passage, verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think that's the promise of the Holy Spirit. The one who is jealous in his love for us. The one who is sent to pour out the love of God, the father in our hearts. This is the one who is the spirit of adoption who bears with our spirit that we are children of God. The one who is able not only to convince our minds, but seal to our hearts that we are loved by God the Father. When Jesus Christ becomes your Savior, you're included in him as the Son. And when you are in the Son, the Father can't reject you. When you're in the Son, the Father can't love you any more than he already loves you. The Father can't love you any less. When you're in Jesus, to know his mercy is to know abiding joy. How does that come to you? It's by grace. Receiving it. Everything in this passage about grace. The people who dwelled in darkness, they found a flashlight. No. The people who dwelled in darkness had a light shine on them. The light came from the outside in, from heaven to earth. How's he going to bring uh, comfort and endurance, enduring joy and courage? Even from political opponents, he's going to bring it through a child. Because God loves to do things in unlikely ways to make it clear that he is the one alone who saves. There's an allusion to Gideon here who, with his little faith, kept asking God to, for tests and God told him to make a smaller army and so forth. And, and uh, Gideon, there's a lot that everything about Gideon is unimpressive. And God used him, saved him and his nation to demonstrate that he is the Savior. How do you get it? How do you get this mercy that leads to joy. You receive it. You receive it. Get to the place where you can receive it. You come to this table 
where the word that has been spoken to you is also sealed to your conscience so that you know that it is as real as the taste of this bread, the scent of this cup. We come at it another way through a hymn that we sing all the time, but most of us don't understand. You, you know, sometimes when you think about the wor- actual words of a song, you think, why in the world did I sing that song? And one of those is, God rest ye merry gentlemen. You ever think about that? God rest ye merry gentlemen. If the, if the gentlemen are merry, why is he telling them to, be, to rest? It's like talking to fraternity brothers after a football game. Hey, don't be so uptight. Oh, we're not uptight. Why why does that make sense? Part of it is because we don't understand the vocabulary. Rest means be at peace. Merry doesn't mean happy clappy. It means mighty. It's It's a hymn that was written over five or six hundred years ago. It was written by peasants and sung by peasants because uh, they found the music in the church so boring. It was all in Latin. They didn't understand what it said. It's just droned on. It was like a funeral chant. And so they, they, they had this, these more hopeful words to a tune they even danced to. It became popular in the 1840s with Ebenezer Scrooge and Charles Dickens. And that was the first hymn of Christmas that made Ebenezer Scrooge mad. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Merry means mighty. You know, Robin Hood and his merry, it's not his fraternity brothers. Merry, God, it's Robin Hood and his mighty men. So what happens when you, when you understand that vocabulary and the sentence is punctuated properly? It's on page six. It's the one we're going to sing in a minute. It is God rest ye merry, comma, noun of direct address, gentlemen. Sorry, women. I didn't write it. It means men and women. People, it says. People, in, in effect, People. May God peace you into courage. People, people who are, who are surrounded by conspiracies and by fears and by people who traffic in rage. Be at peace. May God make you at peace by training your eyes completely on him and out of that peace may you become courageous the fear that eclipses all fears is the fear of a heavenly father revealed in Jesus Christ and sealed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's the story of the Christian faith I now ask you to rise with me and repeat it using the Nicene Creed as we approach the table